You've also got to make sure that you challenge assumptions. And the challenging assumptions part is the key piece that just because this is the way that we've always done it, is that really the way that we need to continue? Can we enter into a digitalization realm where we're starting to address some of these procedures and processes that we can probably change into a new value-added business model? That actually feeds in the AL of digitalization and the alignment is to ISO 55000 and asset management. Welcome to another Conversations with Des. I'm Des Blanchfield. Today I have the pleasure of being joined again by Greg Perry, who's a CMRP and a CRL, which I'll get him to describe the details of and explain in a moment. Essentially, he's the reliability consultant for Fluke Excelix. Greg, thanks so much for making time to catch up with me. Great to have you on the show. Absolutely. Great to be here. Can you maybe just quickly explain uh, some of the acronyms that are behind your amazing accreditations and certifications? CMRP, let's start with that one. What does it actually mean? Certified Maintenance Reliability Professional. It's sanctioned by the Society of Maintenance Reliability Professionals. And the second one is Certified Reliability Leader, which is uh, sanctioned by the Asset Management Professionals Organization that comes out of Reliability Web. Reliability Consultant sounds like it's relatively straightforward. I would love maybe for you to kind of give us an insight into kind of what that remit is, because I, I know it's extremely broad, it's deep, you cover a great deal of stuff, you do everything from the communications and education and evangelizing the concept and everything around that, through to actually being a practitioner hands-on for all of your career. So maybe just give us some insight into kind of what a reliability consultant does, what's, what's a day in the life of Greg Perry entail? You know, at the end of the day, to interface with maintenance professionals, like at the interface with operations uh, professionals. So uh, they're both trying to obtain the same thing, uh, quite uh, surprisingly, um, even though they try to consider themselves as two separate camps. And uh, But the truth is, you know, both maintenance and operations um, are out there actually trying to maintain uptime. I mean, that's the name of the game. That's what they're trying to do. And uh, later on in this uh, podcast, we'll introduce another phrase that actually uh, wraps it all up. Now, you've been in this space for, for decades. I mean, I, last time I had, I had a look at uh, some of your amazing background, I mean, there's like two decades of actual hands-on practitioner that's sort of transitioned now to, as I said before, sort of more of that uh, a mix of hands-on practitioners through to developing design strategy and evangelizing. That must have been an interesting journey to go through sort of from your early days, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago, sort of being hands-on and on the ground, figuring this stuff out, coming up with the concepts. Because for, for most of what you're doing now, you have effectively created the concept, designed and developed it, implemented it, and now you're in the role of, I guess, you know, not just evangelizing it, but helping people go through that journey. That, that must have been an interesting process that you've been through to get to where you are now today. Oh, it has. It has. Not from a traditional point of view, but uh, from from the standpoint of maintaining assets or managing assets or maintenance. I mean, the world of maintenance and the world of uptime, the world of maintaining systems and and uh, processes that uh, are sustainable. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know, what 
profession you're in. I mean, I've, I've gone all the way from a record store at one time, way back in many moons ago, all the way to where I'm at today. There is a, a common lineage with any of this. So it's been a hell of a journey, but uh, I got a lot more ahead of me. I can tell you that because, uh, you know, maintenance is uh, something that even though it's becoming a, a word that we're trying to de-mystify uh, and also try to, to to make it less negative sounding than our lexicon, yeah, that's all we do every day. Every day when you wake up, you put your feet on the ground, you're maintaining. Curiously, I, I had that little epiphany the other day where uh, the, the grand old age of 51 this year and uh, – you, know, you get up in the morning, go for a run. It's getting cold here. We're just entering winter, and I started bemoaning the fact that I've got to get up and go and pound the pavement, get some miles out, do some workouts, do some sit-ups and crunches. And it struck me that really I'm just maintaining this body that I've got to live for a bunch more years in, and if I don't, no one else is going to do it for me. And I guess that's in many ways a similar uh, uh, view of some of this infrastructure that we spend a lot of money on infrastructure and things that go hum, uh, and we monitor them in certain ways. But if we get better and smarter and clever at it, they're going to last for a lot longer. We're going to get a better ROI. And in some cases, we're going to save lives. And, and uh, so, yeah, I, I just remember jumping out of bed thinking, God, I don't want to go and knock out 5K. But I'm sure that's the same sort of experience that people have when they stare at a big piece of infrastructure and think, oh, I don't want to go and start checking this environment. But if they don't, it's not going to just maintain itself, is it? No, it's not. You, know, it's kind of made, you made an interesting point. Your ROI, you're saying return on investment. Yeah. When, I, when I hear ROI, uh, from my side of the fence, uh, it's return on integrity. So, you know, you, you want to sit here and, and shout at me, show me the money, show me the money. Well, I shout back, show me the integrity. You've uh, recently introduced this concept of connected reliability. It sort of links to what you're just talking about there. What does it actually mean in your terms, in your language? How do you describe that concept to them in your world? All right. So connected reliability within Fluke's world. Okay. So Fluke's a technology company. Emaint CMMS is a technology as well. Uh, at one time, Emaint was a company that Fluke acquired. And that's where I came into the picture because I used to work with Emaint. But still, it, we tend to, because we're a technology company, we tend to try to look at reliability from those lenses of technology. So in other words, you'll see companies out there that uh, within our same realm approach reliability from that point of view. And they seem to not understand or, or at least acknowledge that there's two other aspects to this, one of which is people and the second of which is processes. And so connected reliability, um, even though it's, it's really, it kind of, it stands more firm in the technology side, it does acknowledge and bring into its lexicon people and processes. So we want to connect equipment, assets, and data, and we want to connect that through synergy with processes and people together because that's where you're going to get true reliability. You're never going to software yourself to reliability. You're never going to predictive maintenance your way to reliability. You're never going to condition monitor yourself to reliability. You're not going to do any of that without people and processes. And the Excelix framework, but the connected reliability uh, theorem is uh, just that. It's connecting people with assets and it's bringing technology with people and processes to the shop floor. Maybe give us a little insight into kind of what that framework is like. When we last spoke, it was one of the central points that we conveyed to listeners that, you know, as you just said, you're not going to install some software that does it all. It doesn't just do it with hardware. Magically collecting data doesn't just give you insights for the sake of it. 
Give us a little bit of insight into the how that whole framework sort of structures up. And I know people probably been to your website and they've looked at some of the web portals and read a lot of material and certainly some of the great uh, blogs and articles you've been publishing. But how do you describe that framework? How does that interconnected piece all sort of bring that outcome? All right. So days of old, um, I had uh, the people side and the people side would go out and manually go out and collect information. Okay, where does it go? If you're in a digitization realm, then you're probably putting into a CMMS. Say you are going out and you're starting a fledgling beginning condition monitoring program, and you're probably are still manually going out there and collecting the data and information. Routinely, what happens is that the data just goes, it'll get back fed into a CMMS system or any kind of a system of record, and it becomes a black hole doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't do anything. It's not connected to anything. You're just going out collecting data, and what are you doing with it? Nothing. So you may also have, with the Industry 3.0, gave birth to uh, PLC systems. And what are we doing now that we have matured Industry 3.0, and we are now in the Industry 4.0? What are we doing now with that data? What are we doing with the HEMS data? What are we doing with the SCADA data? What are we doing with the systems that we developed in Industry 3.0? that has the capability of creating actionable data. How are we connecting that to the shop floor? How are we bringing it from the shop floor to the technician so that they can take action upon this? And so therefore, you've got all these different proprietary systems, all these disparate systems, all these different silos, and we need to go in there and actually break down those barriers. We need to find a way that we can have all of these systems be able to aggregate their data together so that we can now do something with it and be more actionable. All the way from the point, if you just want to be given alarms, well, then how are we delivering that to your pocket? If you just want to get notification, how are we delivering that to your pocket? And a connected reliability framework allows you to do that with the use of today's condition monitoring, uh, continuous uh, monitoring sensors, with today's predictive maintenance tooling, uh, handheld tools, and also with uh, modern sensors and the AM systems, and also being able to go out and connect that up with mobile technology and uh, marry it up with people and actually make this whole framework come a reality and not just a proprietary piece, but actually a no barriers approach. That's part of the challenge, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people already have, you know, well, most people have some sort of infrastructure in place, some system, some process, whether it's pen and pad and spreadsheets or complex Mm -hmm. systems, multiple brands. I guess one of the challenges you face is that, you know, just despite the desire to have them all run your end-to-end uh, uh, brand product and capability, they've already got some stuff that you've got to integrate into. They've got uh, infrastructure and software and tools and systems and people that you've already got to, to, to take into account. And that must be an interesting juggling act. Because uh, when I think about what you're talking about there, it, it sort of brings me to this um, term that you sort of introduced me to around capacity assurance last time we spoke. And um, I guess a lot of this whole framework leads us to that idea that when you get from as you refer to actionable data, then it brings you to this capability of going from connected reliability to capacity assurance. And I'd love to get a bit more of an insight into kind of what that means in your world. But there was a really great phrase that you mentioned uh, last time we chatted, and I I made a note of it because it really did kind of strike a chord with me. And that was you said that capacity assurance shouldn't be pigeonholed. And that is that maintenance is not married to reliability, but and reliability is not necessarily married to maintenance. That isn't one or the other. They're this blend of all the bits going together. When you think about where you're leading to from that whole framework that underpins connected reliability, 
Where does capacity assurance uh, fit into the story? Uh, is it the end goal? Is it part of the journey? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Well, I can tell you, um, I'll have to probably go back to uh, day one with this. How did capacity assurance get born? So I borrowed the idea, and, and I can tell you um, that's usually how uh, innovation works. You know, I didn't invent this, but it's an innovative approach. International Asset Management, IAM, uh, does a great job of explaining ISO 55000 asset management and through a depictorial way of uh, telling the story with what they call the big picture. You know, th that resonated with me because the big picture is what I think is missing over on the side of reliability-centered maintenance, reliability-based maintenance, and even within condition-based maintenance, CBM. So when we talk about uh, and reliability, we always go back to where it all started. So let's go back to Nolan and Heath. Let's talk about the PF curve that came out of their study. Let's come back and start talking about how we apply the PF curve so that we can better align the best maintenance strategy that we have so that we can eliminate or mitigate uh, failure modes. Now, when we also look at somewhat of a more holistic approach as well, where you're, you're dealing with materials management, you're dealing with maintenance, you're dealing with some degree of operations, kind of out of the holes, so we call that RCM2. But the thing is, it still doesn't paint the whole picture. So enters the next piece with actually studying RCM Blitz from Doug Plucknett. And uh, he has a drawing of what's called the DIPF curve, and which was uh, adopted by Reliability Web. And is a great way of displaying everything from design state all the way through end of life, run to failure type of deal on the DIPF curve. And at the same time, I'm sitting there looking at it thinking, well, this doesn't give me the big picture either. And so what is the big picture? So enter class I took with uh, Ramesh Galati, and uh, he started talking about what that big picture really is. And he said these two words, but not in the same sentence, but in, in the same paragraph. And he talked about capacity and he talked about assurance. And really, at the end of the day, uh, whether you're on operations, production side, or whether you're on the maintenance, maintainability side, you are dealing with capacity assurance. So, wow, that's the big picture to me on what that really is. And so I, I went back to the DIPF curve, and I said, you know what, what part of this is cap A? Well, it really is everything from design all the way to failure. Okay, that's capacity assurance. And within there, you've got many different roles and you got many different, I guess what you call uh, skill sets that need to be deployed in order to maintain capacity assurance. So if the capacity assurance represents the entire continuum of uh, reliability base all the way from design, implementation, commissioning, precision, maintenance to various corrective aspects, what do we call that? And so I went and found, oh, we have a definition for that. It's called attainability. So capacity assurance is attainability. Well, okay, that sounds great. So what about the traditional PF curve portion? And what where, what do we call that um, rather than we just keep calling it PF curve? Because that's all I ever heard. So what is it? What's the big picture there? So I go and I do some more research and I find out, well, that's called maintainability. Well, okay, so that's capacity assurance maintenance, maintainability. It addresses 
where corrective maintenance activities exist so that you can ensure the highest attainable level of what we call, and there's two more phrases that uh, finally came forth, is level of inherent reliability. Well, wait a minute. So what's inherent reliability? Well, inherent reliability is pretty much the entire, it, it describes uh, the asset and, uh, and it's the measure of the overall, I guess what you would call robustness of a system or a piece of equipment. And I finally figured out that it provides an upper limit to reliability and availability that can be achieved. So what, what does that mean? Well, that means that no matter how much inspection or maintenance you perform, you'll never exceed the inherent reliability. You operate, maintain, and inspect the device as well as possible, right? But you'll never be able to harvest all of the inherent reliability. So on the other hand, if there's gaps in both operating context, maintenance context, or inspection practices, or design context, you will only harvest some of the inherent reliability, but you won't ever be able to obtain full inherent reliability. Okay, so that gives concept to inherent availability. So what is that? So I'll go and do some research, and lo and behold, it was addressed back in 1996 with Weibel. Wow. So but wait a minute. So we've already we've already looked at this. So in theory, reliability theory and reliability engineering, I find out that the term availability has the following meanings: is the degree which a system or a subsystem or equipment is a specified, operable, and committable state. In other words. When is it uh, uh, called upon to be in commission or when is it called upon to be at the start of a mission when the mission is called upon at an unknown random time? So availability is an important metric and it's used to assess the performance of reliable equipment. So it's common both from a operational side uh, and production side all the way over to the maintenance side. So whether a component or a system it's accounting for both the reliability and maintaining ability properties. So how do you measure it? Well, it's a steady state availability. So it's only from the corrective maintenance downtime. And when I learned those two, I had an epiphany. And I said, oh, my good grief. So everything that we'd be doing in a traditional PF curve is the maintainability side. And the entire continuum is called attainability, which is called capacity assurance. It just made perfect sense to me and to start talking about what we do in the terms of capacity assurance when I'm talking about from design aspect, from the install aspect, all the way through precision maintenance processes. So here I'm actually looking at people, processes, and then when we get into the PF curve, what technologies are we using? Well, inter connected reliability, we can help you bridge the gap with those technologies and so that you can maintain your assets and uh, get to, and try to ensure the highest attainable level of inherent reliability of an asset or a system. That's where capacity assurance came from. That was the big picture for me. And and so that's the story I've been sharing now and and hopefully um, resonate. You know, as we've told you, you got to say things sometimes seven times in a row before anybody hears only the first word. The, well, that's some t I think that's understandable in many ways because there's such big topics and it's the first rule of advertising, isn't it? You've got to say the same thing three or more times before anyone will even pay attention. This is a this is a long running space. This is not something that just popped up overnight. When we see you know various industries are created overnight and people are still trying to figure it out, this is a space that's been around for decades and decades, potentially hundreds of years, keeping things ticking and running. Even back to the days of uh, sailing wooden ships around the planet, they still had to maintain them and put tar in the gramps and make sure that the timber didn't fall apart. One of the big shifts that I've seen that you've brought about now 
as far as the what I, I guess a pivot from sort of scenario where Fluke has made sensors and 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 devices that have collected data for some time, and now you're in this blend of the software capability for the platform that can provide insights and so forth from the data. But you've now got sensors that generate data. And when we spoke last time, it was a point that really jumped out at me that you're no longer just making devices that collect data, you're making devices that can also generate data. With what you've just shared now around that whole journey from the overall framework of connected reliability through to the challenge of gaining capacity assurance, where does sensors fit into this? Because there's a big shift now where we're putting different things, you know, cars now collect data, aeroplanes collect data. I think a lot of people are collecting data, but they don't quite know what to do with it. When you're talking to people and, and you're describing what you're now doing with the sensors that you're putting out that are not just collecting data, but generating data, give us some insight into kind of that shift and pivot where, where sensors fit into this journey and what that pivot's been like. The ability to, to add a sensor is... If first and foremost, uh, you're probably are doing that because you want to eliminate the people piece, the resource piece, or because uh, you know you're not going to pay somebody to sit there and, and hold a um, uh, an analyzer in piece uh, to a piece of equipment for hours and hours and hours is to gather readings so that you can go and analyze or so that you can diagnose uh, before you prescribe which is really what you're trying to do. It's no different than if you think about healthcare. You know, why do they put uh, uh, devices on you that can measure your vital signs and then re- and report back out through telemetry? And it's 24-7. So they're leveraging technology to be able to maintain asset health, and that's what we're doing. So if we can use sensors to go out and give us some advanced notification, then the whole idea, the whole idea is to capture any kind of probable failure or potential failure on the PF curve sooner rather than later. So we're leveraging technology to do that. And then, of course, we have other added benefits, like I said, of actually being able to put sensors into legacy assets that otherwise you're going to have to revert to uh, a different um, maintenance methodology of predictive maintenance where you're actually going to go and just take a snapshot of the current uh, time and so of the operational state of the asset. And you're going to have to do more than one of those in order for you to actually get a, the, the grand picture of the, of the overall health of what you're trying to monitor. So censorship or continuous condition monitoring helps you move from a time-directed or time-based type of maintenance over into on-condition type of maintenance. And so sensors are going to help you make the pivot and turn towards condition-based maintenance uh, more so than predictive maintenance tools will. That, that's the bottom line for that. Other, other than the technological advances and, and, and uh, benefits that you get from having sensors so that, again, they're, they're smaller, they're cheaper, uh, they don't call in sick, they're not complaining, they don't have time off that they got to take, and they just do their job and they do their job well. I did like your example with regard to health because I love the visual and mental image that comes about when we think about health and hospitals and or aged care, but particularly hospitals because you've got building maintenance, you've got infrastructure and machine maintenance, air conditioning, power, battery backup, UPS, you've got uh, security alarms, and then you've got the reason you're doing all that, which is the humans, as you alluded to there a moment ago, with monitoring the health of people. So you've got that whole end-to-end journey of the building that they're in, the infrastructure supporting them, the devices that are plugged into them to keep them alive and monitoring to keep us alive. And you kind of get that full cycle of capacity 
uh, and, and assurance and, and reliability that essentially keeps that human going home at the end of the day. When we think about this whole space of connected reliability and what people are now talking about, though, with regard to not just the Internet of Things, particularly the industrial Internet of Things, when we think about some of those big spaces, uh, particularly manufacturing comes to mind, what, what does that space look like in that transition to uh, adopting the industrial Internet of Things, putting sensors on things, collecting data? Well, with new industry, or let's say it's a new plant, okay, we're going to want to focus on the design. And, of course, we do have a, I guess what you'd call a uh, showcase um, where Connect Reliability is installed and uh, with one of our clients that built a brand-new greenfield plant. Um, they manufacture transmissions for actually the drive lines, not transmissions for Jeep. And so it, when they built the plant, they also make sure that they had the latest and greatest in the technology, so they designed heavily. They installed correctly, and they put in some precision and proactive uh, structures and processes in place. They wanted to start out with not a traditional way of, okay, we're going to install this equipment, and then we're just going to start running some rudimentary PMs on it and do some time-based and time-directed. They actually designed it in mind so that they can go straight to on-condition or or condition-based maintenance when they first deployed. And uh, eventually, uh, they put in... Fluke CMMS system. They also put in Fluke sensors. They they started uh, putting in and using some of Fluke PDM tools as well. And immediately they're starting to, not only did they baseline the equipment that they put in from the very beginning, but uh, now they actually have a a digital, uh, I guess, thumb on the heartbeat, if you will, of uh, the overall plant. All the way from tip A to tip to tip Z. It's yet to be, I guess, something that you know was that is that something that's going to be revolutionary at, at, yet to be seen. But it was certainly an evolutionary step. So you have on that hand a greenfield plant was able to go in and start leveraging their systems and robotics, any of the uh, data sources, and actually bringing them into a centralized. Uh, I guess what you call like a data warehouse aggregation and being able to then actually have actionable data at their disposal immediately and have that be able to to be the core of their maintenance program, the reliability program from the very start. And then you've got older uh, manufacturer uh, examples out there that have got equipment that's been out there for over 100 years and what we call legacy assets. And how do we give them a voice? And, and how do we give those assets a way to uh, raise their hand and when they don't feel well? Or they can give an early indication that uh, something's quite not right. We are in this age uh, where we're losing talent. We're losing our seniors uh, to retirement, to, to uh, winning lottery tickets, what have you. And we have a newer workforce that's coming in. And so if we think about it, how are we going to take these legacy assets? Because you, you know, let's admit it, the, the industries out there don't have the money to just say, okay, let's tear everything down to the ground and build a brand new green greenfield plant. That, you know, that's not going to happen. So what platform or what framework do we have so we can connect legacy assets with today's workforce? That's where the rubber meets the road. Right. So how are we going to bring that data and make it actionable um, with the younger, newer workforce that do not have that tribal knowledge in their head, that intuition, okay? Let's don't talk about artificial intelligence quite yet, all right? Let's don't talk about machine learning quite yet. Let's talk about 
how do we digitalize? And that's really what I'm trying to say. It's with the AL, digitalization. How do we do that? Yeah. How do we how do we bring again the core components of what connected reliability is built on, which is people, process, and technology, which also brings in comprehensive data that matters with end-to-end connectivity. And then how do we also empower the new team, the new mindset that's on the shop floor? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Yes, it is. But it's a legitimate question, and it's here. And we've, we've got to find answers to that because time is not standing still. The one thing that I keep hearing from people is exactly that, that they, they are so short of time. They were, somebody said to me the other day, they, all, they wake up every morning after a good night's sleep, but they feel breathless before their, their feet even hit the ground because there are so many big moving pieces. But you also mentioned some of the really critical pieces, which is the, the shift in the generational handover, the age of some of this infrastructure. You, know, you mentioned 100 years. I mean, that's not an unusual thing in some of this big infrastructure space, whether it's you know, power utilities or or bridges or spans or roads or buildings. I think there's a lot of focus on new shiny things. And yet in your world, I'm sure that, you know, 100 years is, is, is still a new thing. You know, we, is there a sense of breathlessness where they're, I guess, in one part excited of what's capable, what can be done, but also just a little bit of breathless challenge around where do you start? How do you start? Is it too big? Is there a sense that some of these challenges are, are starting to get too big for them and and the, the kind of jump for joy when you walk in the room, you've got a solution for them. I, mean, I can only imagine what it's like when you look at a field of power plant wondering, how am I going to keep this healthy? How am I going to save lives? How am I going to reduce cost? How am I going to maintain this stuff for longer? There's so many big questions to be answered now. Well, you definitely need to start with reducing the complexity. Right. And that's the essence of digitalization. So wherever we can reduce complexity, wherever we can bridge gaps, leverage technology and unite processes and people with it. That's where you start. You know, it's interesting you, you you asked that question. I just did an on-site with a uh, utility company. It's actually in Canada, up in uh, Prince Edward Island. So we're installing a new CMMS, all right? We're installing eMain. They used to have an older CMMS, they had another CMMS. It was too complex. Imagine that. That's the reason why they were going in with a new CMMS, because they actually embraced that idea first. But we also want to install a solution set that's going to give us opportunity. So that's why we went in. We installed the uh, eMate, and they're going to get up and running with it. So I'm dealing with that and just a routine implementation of one of the aspects of uh, one of the key pieces of uh, Excel. It's the Connect Reliability Framework is a CMMS or EAM, and which, by the way, it's agnostic. It doesn't have to be eMate. can be Maximo. can be just for the name one of many, they take me into their command room. And I'm going to tell you, I I was floored. Huge, as big as the walls in your house monitors. Actually monitoring every substation, every transformer, every pole. And I was floored. And from the flick of a switch of a mouse... They could uh, throw a breaker, throw, uh, open a fuse, uh, close a fuse. They can route power. They can do so many different things from that one digital control center. It was amazing. I'm actually watching vehicles move on the map that are service vehicles, where they're at, where they're located. 
it was amazing to see that level of digital infrastructure in place with the utility company basically maintains the entire power grid and all the power for Prince Edward Island. But yet over here in the other room, we're installing a little CMMS to help them manage these assets that they're going to be using only whenever called upon to provide on-the-ready power. This is not a power plant, but um, but it's a crucial thing to the well-being and the safety of, of the city. And they've got to be locked and loaded and ready. Are they going to be able to, you know, whenever they need to be called upon during during any type of uh, emergency or, or, or when they need power that's uh, instantaneous, that they've got to backfeed into the system? So are they going to go in and actually have an opportunity to put in connected reliability on assets that they only run, you know, once or twice, three times, maybe a quarter. <laughs> That's it. No, yeah. You know, er- everything is in standby mode. So, but they got the whole idea of reduced complexity to begin with. And that's where it starts. And uh, the new Greenfield plant that I uh, talked about that uh, from from tip to from tip to end, uh, put in the latest and greatest technology as far as production equipment, manufacturing equipment, robots. Also uh, made sure that the infrastructure was censored and the data that they're collecting is obtainable and, more importantly, actionable. They, too, took it to heart to reduce complexity. And so Connect Reliability at its core is to reduce complexity. And that's where you start. And if you can get a foothold on that, then you're on your journey. You're on your way. You don't have doesn't mean you've got to go out and censor everything. I don't want to go and buy a thousand sensors and just throw them out there, and then all of a sudden you've got a censored plant. That's that's not the deal. But you've got to install connected reliability to where it matters. Okay, and so you got to be selective in that. But you've also got to make sure that uh, you challenge assumptions. And the challenging assumptions part is the key piece that just because this is the way that we've always done it, is that really the way that we need to continue? Can we enter into a digitalization realm where we're starting to address some of these procedures and processes that we can probably change into a new value-added business model so that that actually feeds in the AL of digitalization, I like to think of, uh, of an alignment. And the alignment is to... I went back to it earlier, ISO 55000 in asset management. And so now we're going back to this whole overarching realm of capacity assurance. So it's all connected. To me, capacity assurance is overall synergy where connected reliability is the technological synergy of it. The term that jumped out at me there with the phrase you used of reducing complexity, I think with the amount of data and the type of data and the complexity of the data that's potentially available from some of this infrastructure, I can only imagine it's easy to trip up on making decisions on bad data. And when we think about it from a data science point of view, I often, one of the things I do with people say, well, have you actually looked at what's in the data? Have you validated? Have you checked it? Does it actually make sense? Are you making good decisions on good data or are you making bad decisions on bad data? And it seems to me that um, in many ways, even life-saving decisions can be made if you can reduce that complexity and cut to the quick of what do I need to make a decision on now, whether it's an operational piece, whether it's a, a maintenance piece, whether it's a planning and strategic piece. That leads me to my next question, which is there were three essential components that, that I just made a note around, uh, such around data collection, like getting comprehensive data collection, uh, the connectivity piece, you know, that whole end-to-end journey of getting connectivity in place and, 
and and the, not just the sensors and the data and so forth, but the whole decision making process. It all leads back into the the people process technology piece. Is that your view of the world? Is that where we sort of lead back to? No matter what we do with data collection, connectivity, and and tools, it really still comes back to that fundamental. It does come back to the fundamentals, and that's where we're at today, realistically, if we want to talk about IIoT, Industry 4.0. I've had that question asked of me several times. Are we fixing to enter into the Industry 5.0, or when when do we know that we're going to exit uh, Industry 4.0, uh, Industrial Internet of Things, and then enter into a new revolution? And I can't tell you. Um, I, I don't I don't know what that's going to look like other than I, I, I've had one author tell me that uh, you'll know that you've entered into industry 5.0 when you walk into a plant and there's only a uh, dog and a person in the whole plant. And the person's job is to feed <laughs> feed the dog. I like that. That's that's sort of like a Mad Max movie, isn't it? You walk into a, a power plant and there's a, a, a hound dog running around. Uh, and and there's a human and the only person, the only reason the person's we, there is to feed the. We've dog. got a lot of work to do uh, to just to, to get to that point, and so let's don't kid ourselves and fool ourselves. That's why I don't know if you've heard me speak of it. I know I have at a couple of conferences and and some articles and some pieces, but talking about this whole thing they call prescriptive maintenance that's out there, RXM. I don't want to talk about that quite yet. I don't think we're there at prescriptive maintenance. Um, I think that's the next echelon. I think that's the next plateau where we need to get to. I think that's where you're going to really start leveraging the power of edge computing and artificial intelligence and digital twins and all that stuff really starts to be more cohesive and come together. But really right now where I see ourselves and what I'm coining is a predictive maintenance 2.0. Right. I think that's where we're at. And so connect reliability fits right in predictive maintenance 2.0 realm. That's just that I'm coining at that because it's easier to, to explain it and thusly rather than saying, oh, yeah, this is prescriptive maintenance and we're going towards that. Now, we are, but we're not there today. I guess it's about um, not boiling the ocean uh, or trying to swallow the ocean at once. It's, it's little small steps, isn't it? And I think even people who are a long way down the maturity curve uh, as far as where they're at with regard to the, the maintenance mm-hmm. or reliability and so forth, they've got to take natural steps and, and get those wins. And they're not always quick wins, but when they get those wins and then maintain them for a while and reflect the value back to the organization at different levels and then come back to the next phase. One of the things I love doing with my guests, and before we wrap up, I'd, I'd love to hand you a virtual crystal ball. I mean, you've shared some amazing insights into kind of what's happening now. So if I hand you a virtual crystal ball and get you to gaze into that, Normally, I would ask people 12 to 18 months, but in your case, I hope you don't mind. I'd love to sort of get your view of where are we going in the next three to five years. What are some of the big things that we need to be thinking about now? What needs to be on the on the sort of the standing agenda of boardrooms all the way down to the sort of agile scrum standing up, talking about things daily? What's coming over the horizon at us? What do we need to think about? What are some of the elements that you think that people should be thinking about and should be aware of? Because you are literally at the bleeding edge of this. So we're, we're in a digitalization era, and so digitalization is also another term for Industry 4.0. It's also another term that describes the era that we're in in IIoT, Industrial Internet of Things. So with digitalization of processes, we really need to probably start paying more attention to digitalization of failure modes and learning exactly how assets fail. Because until we actually know that for a definitive fact, everything else is the second guess. 
And so I think that's kind of the the echelon of where we're trying to get. Not so far as to where we can just walk into a room like Star Trek with your tricorder and actually scan the asset and tell you exactly what's wrong with it. We're not there yet. That maybe one day, but not in my lifetime, I don't think. Maybe it's time to go out and maybe it's time to take the collective of the data that we've got and actually start digitalizing that portion of it. And we already began. We've already started. I mean, there's algorithms that are out there. There are, there are companies that can sense uh, a degradation of functional failure of a motor and come back and tell you based on empirical data, based on what the conditional uh, information that we uh, understand of the operating context of the asset, here are your probable failures that are to, to be happening, to, to is actually going to take place. We're heading towards that, and we are. But that, to me, sounds to be, a, you know, it's a little pocketed. And, and I actually want to see it become unpocketed. And, and how do we do that? Well, now we've got to broaden the scope and decentralize. And we got to start learning from each other. And we've got to open those channels up as well. But how do we do that? I don't know. Don't have the answer to that. But no, I don't have a crystal ball. I really don't. But the ability for you to be able to know exactly when the, the bearing is going to fail when exactly you know the uh, the prescribed method that you need to now deploy to uh, restore full health. You know, we're we're coming a long way in medicine and how we manage assets so to our humans and human health. I got news for you. It's it's unless we're we're addressing it on the design stage, and I'm really talking about going out and forming all this data so that we can design a bigger, better, better mousetrap right or widget maker yeah you know and and i think that that helps and that goes a long way but you know are we are going to have to wear the day you come to work and and you have a list of uh, machinery that's uh, actually sitting here telling you how sick they are i mean maybe one day i you could have asked me the same question 20 years ago when i was uh, maintaining medical equipment and I would have given you the same answer. Right. Like, I really wished I had a way to, to know uh, ahead of time before me having to go and run all these system checks and all these PMs and having to do all this on this equipment so I can maintain, again, capacity and assure capacity and maintaining risk and maintaining safety. I wish it would just tell me. I wish, you know, we had the yeah. age where assets told you. Fortunately, with the way that we do maintenance today and the way that thing is set up, it's actually seen as a negative. When an asset tells you it's broke or it's sick, then, then uh, you're too late. That's that's the whole point. You know, you don't want it to where, where the asset can tell you it's sick and it's broke. That's the mindset today. Me, I want to find a way that we can turn it so that, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. I want the asset to tell me it's broke or it's sick. How can we make that happen? Or, okay, so we're making smart assets. We're making smart widget makers. And that's where we're going. Yeah, we absolutely are. We've got to understand the fundamentals of inherent reliability. And inherent reliability, the only way you're going to get any hard ROI on that is to, again, take the, the not return on investment, must return on integrity so that we can make uh, those devices um, a lot easier to maintain and, and increase the maintainability of that. So in other words, we want to lengthen the PF curve to the right. 
It's all about today trying to move up on the PF curve further to the left. But we really need to make strides so that we can actually lengthen the PF curve to the right. So that's where I want to see things go. How do we get there? I'm not the smartest uh, or brightest crayon in the box and the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm sure collectively we're going to get there. But that's, like I said, I would have seen that 20 years ago. I'm saying it again today. Uh, that's a great summary. It, 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 as a Star Trek fan myself, it sort of brings back this mental picture that uh, even when they are running run on the uh, deck with uh, tricorders, uh, the captain still rings down and asks Scotty how the machine's going, and he's still monitoring the, you know, it always uh, looking at it, he's always looking at the warp core trying to figure out the health of it. And it's like you just created this mental image for me that no matter how many tricorders they've got and how far in the future our science fiction seems to predict, there's still someone in the engine room monitoring the warp core. So I think that was a perfect line to wrap up on that. In my mind, the sense is that it's never a case of actually getting to that end of the journey, which you alluded to in our previous conversation, that this is an ongoing thing. It's, it's a case of, as you just said, getting moving the dial in the right direction to reduce that time to risk, reducing the time to predict the risk and maintain it. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you again, Greg. It's, been, it's just been an amazing conversation again, and it's always fun to chat with you. I'm actually looking forward to catching up with you and getting you on camera at some stage too, uh, hopefully in an event. But, uh, I really appreciate you making time, and I appreciate the amount of insights you've shared with us. Absolutely, Daz. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure.